Well, let's pray together this morning. Father, as we just sang, we recognize that there is no one like you. No one as mighty or as powerful, as glorious or as good and true as you are, Lord. Lord, I ask that as we sing those words, that they would resonate deeply in our hearts, Lord. That we, as your people, gathered together to worship you this morning, would recognize the truth of who you are, Lord. That you call us to yourself, Lord. We do not get to come to gather together to your table to worship you, Lord, because of anything we have done because we have earned a spot in your family, Lord. We only get to be yours because you have made it so. Because of the power of your resurrection, Lord, which we celebrated just a week ago, God, we recognize that that is the only way we get to come to you. So Father, this morning, I pray that you would just place a stone of remembrance in our hearts, Lord. That we, I, I, I confess, Lord, that I am quick to forget who you are and all of the goodness that you have done, Lord. I pray that as we come together this morning that we would remember, that we would sit at your throne, sit at your feet in worship and remember who you are, Lord. That as we sing, as we hear your word taught, Lord, that you would just draw us deeply into your covenant relationship, God. Lord, I ask this morning that as we come together, that you would draw us close, Lord, to one another, to you, Lord, that we would not be quick to forget the truth of who you are, Father. I pray that as we look back on this past week, or maybe this past month, or this past year, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the ways that you've been at work, Lord. We know that you have been working, as we come to the story of Joseph this morning, we know that you work in unexpected and miraculous ways, God, even when we cannot see them. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to the work that you're doing, both in us and around us and through us, Lord. That we would see you in the midst of our work, in the midst of our relationships, in the midst of the things that are hard, that bring us pain, in the midst of our longing, God, I just pray that we would see you in it, Lord. That we would see your hands working throughout it, Lord. God, we come to you, and we just ask that you would continue to encourage our hearts. It has been a long season, full of many different things for many different people. We ask that you would use this morning to not only draw us to yourself, but to encourage us, to give us strength to, to face this next week, this next day, Lord, that you would supply everything we might need. God, because we know that we, on our own, can do nothing. Lord, it is only through the power and strength of, of your goodness, Lord, of who you are, of your spirit in us, Lord, that we can accomplish any good work. So God, we ask that you would fill us, that you would use this time to just allow your spirit to overflow upon each of us, God, um, so that we might go out um, and be your light and your salt in this world that's so desperately in need of it, God. 
We thank you for many of our families getting time these this past week and in the weeks to come to, to take a break for students to be on spring break, for teachers to have a break from teaching God. We pray that that time is refreshing for them. Uh, we thank you that you provide that for them. God, I just pray that you would use it in mighty ways to bond families together, um, to give them what they need to finish their school years, Lord, and that um, you would just give them rest in that, Lord. So we come together, Lord. We ask that you would be with Brian this morning as he comes and he faithfully shares your word um, and that you would use it to draw us deeper to you, that you would stir in our hearts and our minds a deeper knowledge of who you are. We love you, Lord, in your good and holy name. Amen. Well, today, Brian is indeed beginning a new series of Jacob's Sons. And it's all about the sure but hidden hand of God's providence. And for the scripture reading, he has chosen Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, good morning. This week, uh, we begin the first of a nine-week series in the account of Jacob's sons, where the young son Joseph takes the leading character. We pick up the story of a fractured family that is riddled with jealousy, raging resentments, violent vengeance, and gaping wounds. The heroic faith and sacrificial love that characterized Jacob or Abraham has all been lost on the fourth generation. A daughter's purity was violently stolen, and while the father fell silent and refused to act, his sons unleashed their rage in a bloodbath, killing all the males in Shechem under the guise of religion. God's family, which was chosen to bless all the nations on earth, has become a curse. One can hardly imagine a darker place to begin our story. And yet, as the Apostle Paul affirms, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. The narrative dramatically details how in the hidden and unnoticed ways of God's providence, a broken family is radically transformed, reconciled and healed, fulfilling God's covenantal promises. Now the announcement of God's purpose is revealed at the outset of the narrative through dreams given to Joseph. However, neither Joseph nor his family have any idea how God will fulfill them. As his dreams initially provoke jealousy and hate, which escalates to abduction, slavery, and prison. Everett Fox writes, initially the tale is one of family emotions, and it is in fact extreme emotions which give it a distinctive flavor. All the major characters are painfully expressive of their feelings, from the doting father to the spoiled son, from the malicious brothers to the lustful wife of Potiphar, from the nostalgic Joseph to the grief-stricken old Jacob. 
It is only through the subconscious medium of dreams and three sets that we are made to realize that a high plan is at work which will supersede the destructive force of these emotions. I think this text could not be more relevant to our present world that is riddled with hate and bigotry and impenetrable division. Walled in by a pandemic for 13 months, many have lost the ability to dream and to see how God's kingdom is at work. So it is my prayer that God will use these sacred texts to open our eyes to the providential, hidden ways of God and that we become his ambassadors, bringing the gift of reconciliation to our families, the church, and the waiting world. Amen. Well, in the opening scene, we're introduced to the family dynamics and the tensions that will drive the story. Here is the word of the Lord. This is the account of Jacob's line. Joseph, at 17, was tending his flock with his brothers. Now he was an assistant of the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him It could not speak peacefully to him. Well, the account of Jacob's line opens with the name of the young favored son, Joseph. All the promises of Abraham are now lodged with this new one, though his brothers will not concede it. Walter Brueggemann writes, his name is Ad. He is added by the mercy of God. But according to the brothers, he's an unwelcome afterthought. Joseph is the last in the dynamics of the family hierarchy, and he's excluded from the circle of power. But in the home, he lives intimately close to his father. And he, and he is not shy about expressing, exposing his brother's evil deeds to his father. Jacob, perhaps more than his father before him, has no qualms about expressing preferential love. Out of this deep, arbitrary, almost embarrassing devotion, Jacob gives Joseph a magnificent robe. And it's a mark of regal status and announces that this son is to be the wave of the future. Significance is not lost on his brothers and provokes such hatred, they could not as much as give him a greeting. Though the brothers refuse to speak to Joseph, God is not silent. He speaks future mysteries to Joseph in such a way that only deepens the family divide. Verse five. Now Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, here is the dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. 
Well, in the ancient Near East, dreams were the common means of divine communication and prediction. And the prophetic significance of the dreams is not lost on the brothers. They will bow down before their brother's rule, which indeed they do in the future in three different stages. Now, Joseph is either incredibly naive and socially unaware, or as Robert Alter suggests, this whole speech shows us a young Joseph who is self-absorbed, blithely assuming everybody's going to be fascinated by the details of his dreams. It isn't just Jacob's favoritism or Joseph's manner that brothers hate. It is the dream itself that announces a new social and political order that threatens the old and calls it into question. God's choice of Joseph to rule threatens his brothers and causes discord. But the brothers will have to learn to accept his election to leadership. Verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Well, if one dream wasn't enough, Joseph has a second. Notice that he wastes no time repeating it, first to his brothers and then to his father in his brother's presence. As Walke observes, dreams in this story come in pairs to show that the matter is firmly decided by God and will come quickly. An isolated dream might be misinterpreted. Two dreams with the same meaning confirm the interpretation. Well, the dreams unmistakably point to Joseph's prominence, first over the family and then over the whole house of Israel. The brothers can see nothing in Joseph's dreams but a self-absorbed, conceited youth, and their jealousy continues to boil and seethe. The father's reaction is mixed. On the one hand, he's mystified, and he plays the public role by leveling a sharp rebuke on his son, but on the other, he takes the dream to heart. Could it be true? Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, here I am. So he said to them, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Well, first we see that Joseph is no longer shepherding the flock with his brothers. He remains at home with his father, strengthening the bond between father and son. Meanwhile, the brothers are feeding the flock in Shechem, which gives Jacob reason to worry for their welfare. Shechem is where their sister was raped, and Joseph's brothers retaliated by slaughtering all the men of the city. 
Jacob seems clueless of the hatred he incites by his favoritism and sends Joseph alone and vulnerable some 50 miles to report on his brother's welfare. Verse 15, and a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me please where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. You know, the terrible irony of the conflict that drives this chapter is thundered by 21 uses of the word brothers. When Joseph is lost, wandering aimlessly in the field, he is found by an anonymous man who asks, what are you seeking? Joseph's answers, I am seeking my brothers. And that statement epitomizes Joseph's career and his longing. The stranger has been watchful and observant and provides Joseph with the necessary information to complete his quest. The brothers have gone to Dothan, 13 miles northwest of Shechem. The irony is painful, for Joseph, alone and vulnerable, is safer with a stranger from Shechem than he will be with his own flesh and blood. Verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this Lord of the dreams. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we will say a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. The sight of Joseph from afar ignites the brothers' hatred and unites their resolve to murder him and cover their tracks with a lie to deceive their father. In this way, they will kill the dream. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands. He thought, we will not take his life. And so Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Well, Reuben is the eldest son who is responsible for his younger brother in his father's absence objects to their proposal. But Reuben is a coward and uses deception to persuade his brothers that he too wants Joseph dead, as long as the result is achieved without their spilling blood. Rather than killing Joseph, he advises them to throw him into a cistern that was in the pasture land between the villages where no one could hear Joseph's cries. Eventually, he will perish without them having to lay a hand on him. And secretly, he intends to return, rescue Joseph, and restore Joseph to his father and perhaps his own relationship with his father. Verse 22. So, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. When Joseph finally makes his appearance, the brothers act swiftly in unison like well-trained stormtroopers. They pounce on their prey, stripping him of that despicable royal robe. 
Then they carry him outside the village into the field and throw him into an empty cistern with no water. With no water, Joseph will either die of thirst or of exposure. And then the scene turns grim. They sit down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For after all, he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listens to him. With no remorse and callous indifference to their brother's cries at the bottom of the cistern, the brothers sit down to enjoy a celebratory meal. It's interesting, the next meal they will have in Joseph's presence will be with Joseph at the head of the table. But as they dine, they see a company of Ishmaelite traders from Gilead coming down the road that passes through the plain of Dothan to the great caravan road that runs from Damascus to Egypt. And seeing the caravan laden with valuable spices, Judah seizes the opportunity to propose to his brothers that they sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. Now his appeal is not from brotherly love, but from feeling of horror which was not quite extinct within him, occurring the guilt of fratricide. This way, they can still get rid of Joseph and his dreams and turn a handsome prophet. Judah merely is substituting one evil for another, as murder and kidnapping were both capital offenses in Israel. But to his brothers, Judah's plan is genius. Then Midianite travelers, traders passed by <clears throat> and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Together the brothers stood. It was one for all and all for one. They stood above the cistern, pulled Joseph out of the well, sold him for a price. Richard Lonecker captures it well. He says, the bell solemnly tolls for Joseph. And the exceptional threefold repetition of his name makes an extremely important and providential event in the family of Jacob and the history of this embryonic nation. When, Ju when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, and I, where am I to go? And now we discover that this business was settled in Reuben's absence. <clears throat> and I suspect the brothers deliberately kept Reuben out of the loop because they saw through his deception and they knew he would object. Deception is a two-edged sword in this family and Reuben is undone consumed by his personal grief and failure to restore Joseph to his father, he screams, the boy is no more, and I, where will I go? He cannot face his father. But the brothers were not at a loss. Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood, 
And they sent the robe and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please recognize whether it is your son's robe or not. And he recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. A vicious beast has devoured him. Joseph is ripped, ripped to pieces. So the robe was first a symbol of the father's love and then torn by the brother's hate is now a tool for the sons to deceive and betray their father. In God's sovereign justice, Jacob reaps what he sowed as Jacob deceived his father with the skins of a goat and his brother's favorite garments. So his sons use a goat and Joseph's royal road to deceive him. And then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Walter Brueggemann captures the scene. He says, the father believes. He does not know as we do that the beasts couch at the door of his other sons, like Cain and Abel's story. The hate of the brothers has triumphed over the profound love of the father. Now the pathos of a devastated family comes to a great crescendo in this final scene. The father's grief is extreme beyond anything the sons expected and their feigned comfort is vain and worthless. This wasn't just any son that was torn by the beast, it was the son who was the recipient of the dream, the one carrying the promises of Abraham and the future of the people. The loss of the son is the end of life for everyone. Now while Jacob is in mourning, the narrator lifts our gaze to see a ray of hope on the horizon. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now Joseph is not free, but he's still alive. And so is the dream. Joseph was sold by the Midianites to Potiphar, commanding officer of the royal bodyguard. And we are left to wonder about the odds of the dream surviving as it moves to a larger sphere of power and confronts kingdom politics in Egypt. So where do our dreams really take us? You know, after 13 months of a worldwide pandemic, I suspect most of us can identify with Jacob's inconsolable grief over the death of dreams. I've had a very close friend die of COVID in Romania who I shared dreams with future ministry. He was 49. But the good news of our text is that God dreams for us never die. Though weeping may last through the night, a shout of joy comes in the morning. And two things I'd like to say. The first thing is the foundation stone of our dreams is the doctrine of election. Many are offended by the doctrine because it seems arbitrary and exclusive. However, it is important to understand election is not God's choice of one 
to the exclusion of others, but rather the choosing of one to bring life and salvation inclusive for all. In Joseph's case, he was chosen to rule in order to save, restore, and heal his family and to feed the world in the midst of a coming famine. John wrote of Jesus, God didn't send the Son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you got a ticket to board the Titanic, you were doomed the minute you got on the boat. And if someone sent a huge light boat filled with capacity for every passenger, and you didn't take the lifeboat, you wouldn't die because you didn't believe it. You were, you were already judged the minute you got on that boat. The lifeboat didn't condemn you. The lifeboat came to save you. So God's choices is for salvation for all through the election of one. But God's choices are often surprising, bypassing the firstborn and subverting the existing order. So the hatred mounts in Joseph's case. His election drove his brothers to seek to kill him along with the dream. But God's dreams cannot be resisted. But it is only in retrospect, through the lens of faith, that we're able to discern God's hidden hand of providence, directing everything at just the right time to bring about their restoration. As Walke observes, Joseph providentially wastes time wandering around Shechem looking for his brothers. When he happens to meet a man who happened to overhear the brothers say where they would go. Without Joseph's delay, the Israelite merchants would not have happened to come along at the right time. On the spur of the moment, it occurs to Judah to sell Joseph. So Joseph happens to end up in Egypt. The favoritism of a father, sibling rivalry culminating in selling the favorite son into Egypt as a slave, the crime of the century, <clears throat> and the cover-up all play a part in God's providence to save the elect. So it takes faith looking back to see God at work. <clears throat> and now that I'm old or older than most, I have the joy of kind of looking back in my life and seeing all the providential hands of God to get me to where I am today. So that's the first thing. The foundation stone of our dreams is the doctrine of election and God's choice. Secondly, the story of election, humiliation, and exaltation operates on a much larger plane than just Joseph's family dynamics in Pharaoh's kingdom. It prefigures the life of Jesus as God's favored son, and by extension, our life hidden in Christ, and God's whole salvation goal of the reconciliation of the world. And Jesus is first um, comes to earth, it's because the Father sent him from heaven to his brothers to check on their welfare. At Jesus' baptism, God, like Jacob, is not shy about publicly expressing his devotions to the Son. This is my Son, the beloved one, in whom I'm well pleased. 
in Jesus' first public appearance in the synagogue. He opens up the book of Isaiah and he reads it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to declare good news to the poor. And after he reads it, he closes the text and applies the text to himself. This is my story. Then he indicts his brothers for evil and they want to kill him. But he eludes their grasp until the proper time. In the upper room, Jesus has not shy about saying, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. The father loves the son and shows him that he, what he is doing. And greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. When the son declares that through many sufferings the kingdom comes and that he must die, one disciple vainly attempts to intervene like Reuben, but fails miserably, while another like Judah successfully sells him to the authorities for 30 pieces of silver. Unlike Joseph, he dies an excruciating death on the cross at the hands of the Romans. But as the heavens are dark, we never see the father weeping. Why? Well, perhaps he hides his inconsolable grief because of the joyous prospect based on the son's sacrifice, he has made it possible that all who believe become beloved sons and daughters. That's the gospel. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. To God be the glory. Amen. Now receive this benediction. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Amen.